everybody. I'm Richard Krauss. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a big show today, so let's get right at it. Later in the show, we'll spend some time with Claire Pooley, the Cambridge-educated author of Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. I'll tell you about that just a little bit later on, but here's what you need to know about Claire. She spent 20 years working in advertising before realizing that her, quote, wine o'clock habit was out of hand. She started writing a blog, Mummy Was a Secret Drinker, which had nearly 3 million hits. Her memoir, The Sober Diaries, was published in 2017 to huge critical acclaim. Her debut novel, The Authenticity Project, was inspired by her own experience of exposing the rather grubby truth about her own seemingly perfect life. Her new novel, Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting, is available now wherever you buy fine books, and it's an entertaining novel about the unexpected friendships and the joy of connecting that comes along sometimes when you're on your commute. We'll get to Claire just a little bit later on and find out how she became a background singer for ABBA. I would have thought that being a backup singer for ABBA may have been <laughs> your dream when you were a child. So You've tell done me about your research. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about how that happened. You were a backup singer for ABBA when yeah. you were 11 years old. I was, which shows how, how old I am. <laughs> so. We'll get you that entire story, and it's a good one, just a little bit later on. We'll also get to know Chloe Trakos. You know her from the black comedy The Righteous Gemstones. That's a series created by Danny McBride that follows a famous yet really dysfunctional family of televangelists. You can find the show on Crave right here in Canada. Chloe played Gloria Friedman, the wife of televangelist baby Billy Friedman, played by Walton Goggins, who abandoned her and their son in a pet store. She also stars in Introducing Jodea, a comedy about a struggling young actress whose fortunes change when a world-famous movie director drives into the back of her car. It's available wherever you legally buy and download fine movies. She has a fascinating story. Born and raised in Zimbabwe, she is unable to return home because she made a controversial documentary about the country's former leader, Robert Mugabe. It's fascinating stuff. The law at the time, and I think it still is the law there, is that if you're in Zimbabwe, even if you on a foreign passport, if they suspect you of um, spreading um, anti-government information, they can take away your passport and throw you in jail for 20 years. So it was just, um, yeah, it was pretty scary. Um, and I, um, you know, just, you know, that was a thing we just, we, we couldn't go back. Um, I mean, now Robert Mugabe's dead and they have, uh, it's still, I mean, I don't know, I, I'm still hesitant, even though it's just, it's just, it's still, it's just a very, very, you know, scary thought. Well, that's a little bit later on. First, let's meet Chris Pratt and Taylor Kitsch. You know Chris Pratt as the star of the Jurassic World franchise and as Star-Lord in the Marvel Studios' Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Taylor Kitsch is a Canadian actor known for his work as Tim Riggins in the NBC television series Friday Night Lights, and he's known for starring in X-Men Origins, Wolverine, Battleship, Lone Survivor, and for playing David Koresh in the miniseries Waco. Their team today to talk about their new series on Amazon Prime, The Terminal List. The series follows James Reese, played by Pratt, after his entire platoon of Navy SEALs is ambushed while out on a covert mission. Reese returns home to his family with conflicting memories of the events and questions about his culpability. 
As new evidence comes to light, Reese discovers dark forces working against him, endangering not only his life, but the lives of those he loves. Kitch plays Ben Edwards, Reese's best friend and fellow Navy SEAL, and someone who becomes involved in the conspiracy? Or is it actually a conspiracy? It's a mystery. You'll have to watch to find out. Here's Chris Pratt and Taylor Kitch, who joined me via Zoom from Los Angeles. Investigations are still ongoing into the failures of Operation Odin Sword. Failed missions resulted in the death of 12 Navy SEALs. Lieutenant Commander James Reese, can you outline the details of your mission? They knew we were coming. According to the audio logs, you went dark on comms roughly four mics in. Why? That's not how it went down. Headaches, paranoia, memory confusion. evil in this world, the likes of which you can't possibly imagine. This is a psychological drama, one that it's kind of hard for the viewer to know what's real and what isn't uh, from time to time. That's kind of the point, I think, of, of the episodes, uh, certainly early on. Uh, Chris, tell me a little bit if it's difficult to play a character who's kind of an unreliable narrator. We don't know what's real and what isn't and how you you bring that to life. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily more complicated as a performer to be an unreliable narrator. Uh, I think in terms of producing something, writing something in the post-production process, the edit, what you're choosing to tell an audience member or not, that's really the medium where that comes mostly into play and is going to affect the choices that you make. Mm -hmm. But as a performer, you're really focusing on uh, just being real and in the moment. But as it pertains to being like a person who would question their instincts, you know, oftentimes these guys, all they have is their instincts. They're operating in the dark and they, they excel in the shadows because they have a natural instinct to do the right thing, to understand when they're in danger, to act mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a great way. And this is, and so, yeah, that was something that absolutely had an impact in, on how I, you know, emotionally I would approach various uh, moments that I was playing as the character you know, a guy who's always trusted his instincts and a couple of times that he doesn't, it has some profound impacts, both on his troop and on, on how the conspiracy uh, has an effect on his family. And so, uh, you know, I, I, that I, I definitely played that. And then after it ratches away from the sort of psychological thriller into more of a conspiracy thriller, you know, being a man who's committed to his instincts, even if they seem wrong, even if, even if they don't seem logical, you know, trusting his instinct over logic, that's, that was another, uh, you know, a, a note just to, to, to play. Headaches, paranoia, memory confusion. Well, I'm not crazy. You need somebody to help you prove it. You're not at war. You're at home. There's a difference. Not anymore. Let's talk a little bit about the kind of training uh, that you had to undergo to do this. I know you've both trained with Navy SEALs before, but I'm curious about uh, some of the real specifics. You can learn to walk, you can learn to hold a gun, all that kind of thing. But is there anything that you didn't expect that you learned from them that really adds to the character? I think it could, honestly, it could be, it could take us a lifetime to truly inhabit one of those guys. Right. Um, there's so many layers to them, but I think what we're really, the, the first 
thing that we were after is the the brotherhood that kind of is the through line for this whole show for the most part it levies a lot of this um especially when he's going through the emotional trauma and trying to figure every other beat out around him this brotherhood and this relationship is is kind of his last crutch you know um and and then in regards to the seals it's it's really that i don't know we were talking about just how calm they can be in the in the highest stakes yeah um and that is something that i don't you try and emulate as best as you can you know (laughs) there's there's a great book by stephen pressfield called the warrior ethos that jack carr recommended i read along with a few other books and um that that ethos really does uh does a, a great job of you know it really helps understanding that really gets helps you have an understanding of of these guys and the mindset of that warrior class and uh that in terms of training you said you're right how to carry the gun how to how to operate in a way that it would pass a sniff test for not just the lay person who says yeah that seems like it's appropriate for an action film but for some of these military veterans who would watch it and go wow these guys really did their homework they they were punching out correctly around corners they were holding their thumbs in the right position they were counting rounds. They were doing press checks and reloading their magazines, all of this stuff. But, but more so like kind of the situational awareness of, of that warrior class and what they're thinking when they're walking to a room. You might not even you see it, uh, but we were always kind of imagining it. Just the tradecraft of being present and having that type of awareness around you was, was kind of surprising and astounding to realize. I'm not going to tell you again. Stay off my list. Uh, that's all the time. Uh, Taylor, come back oh. to Canada. Make some movies here soon again. I just did. I just did I was you? in Toronto, um, uh, October, November, filming Painkiller. Well, I'll look forward to seeing that. And awesome. uh, congratulations on the show, guys. It's really good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was Chris Pratt and Taylor Kitsch talking about their new Amazon Prime series, The Terminal List. It's a show that sees Pratt's character seeking to find out the truth about his Navy SEAL team's failed mission while also dealing with the trauma that it left him. Now, at the end of the interview there, you heard Taylor Kitsch mention a series called Painkiller that he shot in Canada. That show is a reunion for Taylor and director and executive producer Peter Berg. The two worked together on Friday Night Lights and Battleship in the past. Painkiller will dramatize the origins of the opioid crisis with a focus on Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma. The show is based on Patrick Radden Keefe's New Yorker article, The Family That Built an Empire on Pain, and Barry Meyer's book, Painkiller, An Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic. Kitsch will play Greg Kruger, a hardworking family man whose life is upended when he suffers an injury. It sounds really interesting, kind of like Michael Keaton's Dope Sick series, which I was, well, for lack of a better word, addicted to not that long ago. 
Check out the Terminal List right now on Amazon Prime. Let's get to know actor Chloe Trakos. You know her from the black comedy The Righteous Gemstones, a show about a famous yet dysfunctional family of televangelists that plays on Crave and it stars John Goodman and Danny McBride. Chloe played Gloria Friedman, the wife of televangelist baby Billy Friedman, played by Walton Goggins, who abandoned her and their son in a pet store of all places. She also stars in Introducing Jodea, a comedy about a struggling young actress whose fortunes change when a world-famous movie director drives into the back of her car. She also wrote the movie. It's available wherever you legally download and buy movies. She has a fascinating story, so let's get right at it. Here's Chloe Trakos, who joined me via Zoom from Los Angeles. I want to find out what made you interested in cinema what made you uh, a film fan and then pursue that as a career oh sure i mean you know it honestly i can say it honestly started when i was old enough to work out that people in films were acting from when i was about five years old right. and that that was what i wanted to do i was always a kid who was lost in my dream world and i mean what could be better than just creating for a living as i say to my mom i'm doing exactly what i did back then only now i call it work <laughs> and you're probably making more money than you were when you were five dreaming. Yes. And <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's the thing is when you, you don't do it for money. That's the thing you do because you, you, you have to do it. You love it. Well, you grew up in an artistic family. Your mother's an artist. And so I'm sure that the idea of having your head in the clouds a little bit, being a bit of a dreamer, uh, didn't seem too out of place in your family. Um, well, yeah, actually, I, I was I was the token dreamer. I mean, my mom's an artist, but she's very practical. So is my sister. But in school, I used to, I mean, for the classes I loved, I was there 100%. For the classes I didn't love, my, my head was out the window, you know. Um. <laughs> and you grew up in Zimbabwe, which I did not realize until yeah. uh, doing some research to do this interview. Tell me a little bit about growing up there. What movies were you exposed to uh, when you were growing up there? Was there a theater scene? Was there what was the artistic life like there? Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, very little, little to no theater scene. There was one theater in the city and we used to my mom used to take us to the pantomime every year. And then occasionally there was a play on during the year, like, um, I, and they had good plays, like the, uh, that was how I discovered my love for Shakespeare. Harare, where I grew up, is a very, very small town. When I was growing up, there were three cinemas you could go to to see a movie. We, we used to get most American films, but the, the thing which used to annoy me was when, as a kid, they would put these, in Zimbabwe, they put these ridiculous age restrictions on them. So, like, I can remember we couldn't see Adam's Family Values at the theaters because it was it was no under 16 or something. So, um, <laughs> TV was almost non-existent. They had one channel, and um, they would show TV shows from like 10, 20 years ago um, from the US. And so we used to, um, you know, we belonged to a video a video club and we would get videos that was, you know, we saw a lot of stuff that way. But yeah, but we, we did used to go to the theater whenever we could and it was a real treat. I mean, admittedly, we'd get the movies like a year later than the rest of the world. But, um, you know, it was still uh, so something very special about, you know, being in a movie theater and just having this big screen in front of you. And it, yeah, I do have vivid memories of that as a kid. Do you think that the eclectic nature of the shows that you were seeing, because they were not current, they were 10 years old, you kind of, you had one channel, so you just watched whatever was on. Do you think that broadened your uh, oh. love of, of television and storytelling? Because it wasn't like you were choosing. If you only loved right. romantic comedies and you would only watch romantic comedies, had you had access. But if you don't have access, you just kind of drink in whatever's there. And I think it... Right. 
expands things. I think it also made me more creative because I also, I didn't really watch much TV because also with Zimbabwe, TV starts at four in the afternoon and then it's, it ends at 11 at night. Um, <laughs> and so I used to like create my own stories a lot. But yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. You, you do become very creative when you don't really have everything sort of handed to you. I mean, you kind of watch what's there and, um, you know, you there's always a TV, favorite TV show you liked, which which was on once a week, Um, you know, back before the days of, you know, streaming and all that. But I think it was a good thing. I mean, I think it encourages your imagination. Do you remember the kind of stories you would make up? Oh, I was I was always creating something. When I watched a movie I really liked, a video that we liked, I would always immediately, as soon as it ended, go out and reenact it. So, I mean, I grew up on, I mean, like all, all the old classics um, my parents owned. Like, so we had uh, Mary Poppins, The Sound of Music, My Fair Lady. So all of those ones, I'd always like reenact after... Um, after watching them. I mean, my range for the kind of stories I make up and stuff, it goes from, I mean, anything from the thriller to the to the comedy. It's, it, you know, it's, it's a huge range, whatever inspires me. You're listening to Chloe Trakos on The Richard Krause Show. Find her movie Introducing Jodea wherever you legally buy and download movies. <laughs> Was it around that time that you saw Gone with the Wind? I've read that you say that Janet Lee's performance there is your favorite performance oh, yes, in yes. a film. Um, Was it in yeah, and yeah. around that time that you would have seen that on video? Um, no, I was a little, I was a little, I think I was about 12 when I saw Gone with the Wind. Um, and yeah, and it was, um, yeah, Vivian Lee was amazing. She was, it's one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite movies. I mean, that was a performance that totally, um, yeah, resonated with me. But um, why, but, why did it resonate with you, do you think? You could probably say at the young age that I was when I first saw it, that was probably the first really real drama that I'd really seen because I'd only up till then, you know, when you're a kid, you watch musicals and the happy movies. And this was very, I mean, when you think about Gone with the Wind is very confronting and it's issues with war and stuff. And um, and and, and um, Vivian Lee's performance is so strong. I think it was very much my sort of introduction to to the world of, um, you know, really, really, really good actors. And you are uh, a very good actor now, but you're also, before we leave Zimbabwe, <laughs> yeah, you made yeah. a documentary called A Stranger in My Homeland. Yeah. And uh, tell me about the making of the documentary. It, it, describe to me, if you can, what it was, and then describe the aftermath, because this had a seismic uh, effect on your life and the life of your family. My family were in the process of immigrating. We knew we had to leave Zimbabwe. Things were very bad there. And um, and then around that time, we, we I'd actually made the documentary. It was mostly made in Australia. So we were, but the bottom line was uh, there were a lot of Zimbabwean refugees over in Australia who I interviewed. Um, but yeah, the bottom, you know, it screened across, you know, all kinds of film festivals. And then, um, but yeah, then the feedback came back to me. Uh, yeah, uh, this is lies. Um, Chloe Trikos isn't welcome in Zimbabwe. And, and the law at the time, and I think it still is the law there, is that if you're in Zimbabwe, even if you on a foreign passport, if they suspect you of um, spreading um, anti-government information, they can take away your passport and throw you in jail for 20 years. So it was just, um, yeah, it was pretty scary. Um, and I, um, you know, just, you know, that was a thing we just, we, we couldn't go back. Um, I mean, now Robert Mugabe's dead and they have, uh, it's still, I mean, I don't know, I, I'm still hesitant, even though it's just, it's just, it's still, it's just a very, very, you know, scary thought. Would you like to go back? I mean, there must be part of you to. that would love to. Yeah, no, I would absolutely love to. And I still have friends there and I love it. You know, I mean, it's where I grew up and it's a beautiful country and the people are beautiful and, um, and it's just, it's an amazing place. Um, I, I really would love to go back. So you relocate to Australia 
And that's really from, again, from my reading, where the acting career starts to take off. There's a film called uh, I Wish I Were Stephanie V. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you really begin working there. Tell me how you wind up in America, in Los Angeles. Um well, I think I mean America is kind of the logical next step with if you if you're doing film, because um, I mean Australia has a film industry, but it's very limited, and especially if you're female, um, you know, if you're female and if you haven't like been on TV soaps, they're like neighbors since you were four years old. <laughs> I mean, and, and so that that was so yes, yeah, so that was why I started writing my own stuff. So I did a, a few independents over there, and then I I crossed the pond. There are just more opportunities here. That was basically the main reason. What was the first few months like uh, in the United States? It must have, must have been a, a culture shock for you. It was. You know, when I first came over here as a kid, um, I remember thinking that this was like a different planet almost because everything's backwards. You have <laughs> right. the roads, the, yeah. and not just that, everything from the light switches. I mean, I, yeah, sorry, here it's up to turn on and an Australian Zimbabwe down to turn on. It just, everything is backwards. Um, but I actually, I mean, I was traveling to and from the States quite a bit when I was living in Sydney because I would come over for the American film market and stuff. I start, I was kind of used to it. By the time I moved over, I had a small network of friends. But yeah, it, it was a giant culture shock. I mean, for me, the scary thing was driving on the other side of the road. Um, but it's something which you um, you get used to. And I've adapted and I think I drive better on this side of the road than the other. So there was all of that. But it's, it's really weird. Like, I think after a few months in LA, I just kind of felt, no, this is home. I'm going to stay here. You're listening to Chloe Tracos on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, Introducing Jodea, is available wherever you legally download and buy movies. We're here to talk about The Righteous Gemstones. I uh, am so taken with this show because it's funny, it's edgy, uh, it's got a real kind of uh, social commentary woven through it. There's all sorts of, of aspects here. And I think that probably all points to, you know, the great performances, John Goodman and and, oh, yeah. and Walton Goggins, who we can talk about in a second, and yourself, but Danny McBride. I think he brings something that is a unique point of view to this television show. Tell me a little bit about working with him. Oh, he's amazing. He's just, he's the loveliest guy. He directed my last episode and just, no, he's, he's just, he's just a very sweet person. He makes you feel, you know, completely at home. I mean, his vision for the series was just incredible, you know, and he's, he's done that so well. I was never really like intimidated. Um, he was, you know, he's always lovely. You know, I shot season one and then I made my little independent movie introducing Jodea and I sent him a copy and um, and I didn't think he'd watch it, but he did. And when I showed up for season two, he came over and talked to me about it and congratulated me, you know, just really, really, really decent guy. Tell me about the character of Gloria. What uh, what's it like to play her? The accent, for one thing, is different. Are you is are you something of a chameleon in that way? Can you pick up accents? Yeah, I, I, I do pick up accents. I mean, earlier this year, I shot a pilot where I played a Russian. Um, I kind of just I have to like literally just literally just talk in that accent and listen to that accent repeatedly so that it does. Right, right. Um, I don't I don't go into, you know, my <laughs> normal dialogue. Well, tell me about uh, the character of Gloria. Tell me for people who perhaps haven't seen the television show. Tell me about her. Well, Gloria is a, she's baby Billy's fourth wife. And she, um, you know, in season one, um, she she's kind of just there like with her fancy 80s hairdos. Um, and she's very much in, she's very much his port, his um his shadow, shadow kind of, she, she, she supports him unconditionally. Yeah. She's the mom to their son. Um, she kind of does all the mothering and she just, she, she totally supports him in his big dreams and, 
and all that, that the stuff that he pulls, like, you know, stealing the family land and all of that. He's she's, a terrible man in a lot of ways. <laughs> she's very loyal. Yeah. And then, but by season two, their marriage has completely degenerated. And it's, um, you know, he's blaming her for the fact their son doesn't speak. They're not in a good place. And so he, um, you know, I mean, I think she, he takes her very much for granted. He treats her very badly. And then, of course, as you see, he abandons them in a pet store. So Gloria is someone who, yeah, she's she she starts off by the, by being very loyal, being very supportive of Baby Billy, um, literally letting him take over because he, you know, he is a larger than life character. Mm-hmm. And um, but then, you know, that relationship turns toxic, and she's not happy. Then he abandons them. And tell me a little bit what you would like people to take away from this character. I don't know. I mean, I, would, I don't know about having a message. I think she's uh, very much a, uh, a woman who was very loyal to her husband and got burned. Um, and I think, I suppose what you could take away is that she does single-handedly raise their son who ultimately doesn't turn into a nice person, but you can't really blame him. You know, I, I did crack up laughing when I saw that. Um, I tell him his dad becomes a cat. Um, I thought that was funny. And I also thought that, that was kind of sweet because, you know, it's a way of stopping a little boy being hurt from his dad abandoning him. You know, that's your daddy now. So it's kind of, um, so she's a good mom. She's been a devoted wife, but now she's kind of had a gutful. So I think, I mean, I think, I don't know, I guess if there's a message there, it's kind of, um, you know, don't let anyone walk all over you because then they'll just abandon you in a pet store. Are you writing and working on your own projects right now? Because I love that part of uh, your career is that you you uh, push forward, you create for yourself. Oh, yeah. No, you have to. It's very much, uh, I mean, in acting, you're such, um, you're so vulnerable and you can't depend on other people to get you stuff. And I mean, so when I got Gemstones, I was just elated because it was the first, it was actually the first time I got in a role without a callback. Normally there's a callback and three, two callbacks. And so that was like, you know, so meant to be, it was wonderful. You're listening to Chloe Trakos on the Richard Krauss show. Find her new movie, introducing Jodea, wherever you legally buy or download movies. So my latest project, which uh, introducing Jodea, which is kind of makes fun a lot of the film industry. And it's about a very untalented actress who I play. Who, um, whose fortunes change when a world-famous director drives into the back of her car and she tries to get a role in his movie and she auditions and she's terrible. And so he agrees to coach her. And so it's a, it's a romance developed. So it's a comedy romance. Um, and yeah, and that was one I wrote. Um, it's, it's available now on Amazon, iTunes, all the main platforms, but it's very much um, a sort of a cynical look at the film industry. I think... Um, I think one critic described it as a deliciously spiteful love letter to Hollywood. Tell me a little bit about playing Jodea. Then you say she's not a very good actor. Do you have to learn how to unact when you're shooting her scenes? <laughs> you know, I was um, when we started the rehearsals. I was, um, I thought I was acting badly, and John, the director, said to me, "said No, you're 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 still too good." He said, "You have to be really bad, like over the top bad." And I was like, oh my God, this is going to look so exaggerated, but it, it works. It's actually, it comes across, it's very funny. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it was, yeah, it was a case of, yes, having to get myself into the mindset that this is what she thinks is good acting. And it comes down to the fact that, you know, as the story develops, she later turns out to be a good actress. But, you know, I think a lot of it comes back to, you know, you just takes one bad teacher to tell, teach you bad habits. And that's what happened to her. She thought that over the top and stuff was, was really good, but it, it's not, it's really bad. Uh, did you take a lot of acting lessons? 
Um, I did. And um, I don't anymore. I found that I do much better without acting lessons. Mm. Or if I do, if I want to be coached for a role, I'll have a one-on-one with an acting coach. Because I find with acting, it's very... Um, it's one of those things where I, I don't think it's, it's not like one method doesn't fit all, you know, one method won't fit all. Like I was always taught in my acting classes, do emotional recall, emotional recall, and emotional recall. I discovered only fairly recently doesn't work for me. It's like, I will, I am a method actor. I need to believe in the character. I'm there. I'm in the moment. This is happening to me now. I can't suddenly go away from that. Remember something that happened to me when I was four to make me scared because then I lose it. And then I'm not, I've kind of come out of character. So it took me a while to realize that emotional recall did not work for me. And so that's why I just, I kind of tend to stay away from acting classes because I just find it's not a case of one size fits all. Everyone's different. So I work a lot by myself still. I, I and, um, and then, you know, and if I'm preparing for an audition, I, I have trusted people who I go to who will coach me. And um, that's how I work. I was just reading an article in the Hollywood Reporter about a famous acting coach in LA who's now kind of under scrutiny for her methods. She's been doing this for decades. I can't remember the name. Uh, But they interviewed students of hers who have been studying with her for 10, 12, 14, 15 years. And I thought, that seems like a long time to study with an acting coach. It is a very long time. Yes. When I was in Australia, I used to do all these workshops, acting workshops, but I was kind of started off doing them for the acting. And then you kind of make friends and then the same group of people comes back. So you do the next one just so you can hang out. But no, I get that. It is a long time. And I mean, it's, if you get someone who works for you, then that's great. Um, I just, you know, as I just said, I, I don't, yeah, acting classes aren't for me. It's just, and, um, but yeah, one-on-one acting coaches. Yeah. As I said, I have my trusted people I go to, but but yeah, 10 or 12 years is a, is a long time. Um, Chloe, thank you so much for uh, taking the time thank to you. talk to me today. What a pleasure to speak to you. Pleasure to speak to you too. I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Chloe Trakos on The Richard Krauss Show. Her film, Introducing Jodea, is available wherever you legally buy and download movies. And it's a hoot. Check it out. It's a really fun little movie. She also, not just stars in it, but she also wrote it as well. So let's support her and get out there and have a look at that film. My guest in this segment is Claire Pooley, author of Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting. Here's what you need to know about Claire before we listen to the interview. She spent 20 years working in advertising in England before realizing that her, what she called her wine o'clock habit, was out of control. She started writing a blog called Mummy Was a Secret Drinker, which, over at the time that she was writing it, gathered 3 million hits. Her memoir, The Sober Diaries, was published in 2017 to critical acclaim, and her debut novel, The Authenticity Project, was inspired by her own experiences of exposing the kind of down-low and grubby truth about her own seemingly perfect life. Her new novel, Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting, is an entertaining novel about unexpected friendships and the joy of connecting. It's for readers of authors like Frederick Backman, Rachel Joyce, Matt Haig, Sophie Kinsella, and fans of other feel-good fiction. Claire Pooley joined me via Zoom from New York City. Very interesting to release this book now at a time when I think people are just getting used to commuting again. We've all been at home for a couple of years, and uh, we were just talking before I started recording here. You were on the subway a little bit in New York. You said they were empty. Tell me a little bit about uh, what it was about that kind of uh, setting that appealed to you. I love the the idea of it because there's lots of people. 
you get yeah, to you get to see lots of different characters. And and that was it really, because I was writing this book during the pandemic when we were all isolated in our little individual boxes. And you know, I missed friends and family, obviously, but I also really miss strangers. You know, I really miss being in those situations <laughs> where you're crowded together with loads of people that you've never met before. And you know, I started thinking back to my commute and I felt really nostalgic for it, which was a bit of a surprise because, you know, at the time it wasn't my favourite part of the day. But, you know, I remembered how I used to see the same people on the train over and over again and I would make heinous assumptions about them and I would <laughs> make up nicknames for them and imagine what their lives were like. But we never spoke to each other because people on, on the, the tube in, in London or the, the trains in London never speak to each other. And I just started thinking, you know, what would have happened if I had had the courage to talk to those strangers on the train? And that's really where the idea of this book came from. And then there's an instigating event. There's a thing that mm -hmm. happens that kind of brings everyone together and, uh, and, and reveals a lot about each of these characters. Um, so tell me a little bit about coming up with the idea for that. Was there, have you seen something terrible on the subway that, because people come together in adversity? Yes. Uh, and yes, I have. Um, <laughs> I mean, one day I was on the, uh, the London Underground on my regular commute to work and on the, the London um, Underground, you, you face each other. So there were two rows of seats facing each other. And there was this guy sitting right opposite me who was dressed really smartly. He looked like he had a job in the, he was a banker or, or something like that, very rich. Um, and, but he looked really ill. He looked like he'd been out really late drinking too much and, and was feeling, feeling the, the, the effects of it. So he'd sort of gone green and he was sweating and everybody around him was looking at him really nervously because he started retching and we thought oh my god he's going to vomit on the tube which would be a really unpleasant thing for all of us first thing in the morning and um no not least him um so we were watching him and he picked up his briefcase this smart leather briefcase put it on his knee opened it up and vomited into it and then he just closed it again picked it up and got off the tube and <laughs> carried on to work and we all stared at him and nobody said a word. And you know what, Richard, that, that sort of got me thinking, well, if even that isn't enough to get strangers talking, <laughs> what would it take? You're listening to Claire Pooley on The Richard Krause Show. Find her new novel, Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting, wherever you buy fine books. Which is why the inciting incident in the first chapter of Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting is a near-death experience because I thought it would it would take somebody being about to die and in this instance uh, this guy very much like the man I saw mm -hmm. on on the tube you know a banker dressed very smartly who Iona calls smart but sexist man spreader um, and he uh, starts choking on a grate, can't breathe, and they have to give him the Heimlich manoeuvre, which then saves his life. And, and it, yeah, I thought it had to be that dramatic to get through that British reserve. <laughs> I would have thought that being a backup singer for ABBA may have been <laughs> your dream when you were a child. So You've tell done me about your research. <laughs> yeah, tell me about how that happened. You were a backup singer for ABBA when yeah, you were 11 years old. I was, which shows how, how old I am. <laughs> so, so when ABBA were um, doing their Voulez-vous tour, yeah. uh, which was back in 
you know, the gosh, uh, it was about sort of 1979 or 1980 or something like that. So I, yes, I was 11. Um, uh, they, I, I was in Brussels. Right? My parents, uh, my dad worked in Brussels, so we were living out there. And um, I was at the British school there, and I was in the choir. And um, it turned out that ABBA um, had, had written this song called I Have a Dream. And if you listen to that song, you can hear this choir of kids in the background. And they needed a whole bunch of English, you know, kids who could sing in English to be backing singers for this big concert that they were doing at the stadium, uh, you know, the football stadium. Um, and uh, and I remember vividly being in this this sort of uh, this class at school, and they somebody came in and said that they had a letter from my parents, and I thought, oh my god, I'm in big trouble again because yeah. I was always in trouble, and I <laughs> almost didn't give it to my parents, and then. I took it home and, and they opened it and they said, oh, they want you to sing in ABBA's backing group. <laughs> I was like, you what? <laughs> so, yes, I did. And I've got their autographs and they were great. And uh, it's still one of the most thrilling moments of my life. There were 80,000 people you know, and we were sort of standing on stage. So looking at this sort of sea of, of people, it's extraordinary. That's that's incredible. Eighty thousand. That what does what does it sound like when eighty thousand people appreciate something that you've done at the end of the song? It must have been. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, before before the, we we had our big moment on stage, we were in the sort of dressing rooms beneath the stage, and at the beginning, we could, you know before Abba went on, they there were eighty thousand people stamping their feet. <laughs> And it was it was an extraordinary sound. It was quite amazing. Um, and then during the song, because it's a sort of slow song, people and everyone used to smoke in those days. We didn't have iPhones. We yeah. had lighters and people yeah. used to wave their, their lighters. So there were sort of, you know, uh, tens of thousands of tiny little fairy lights um, around the stadium. It was uh, yeah, um, I wish uh, if I wasn't if I wasn't a novelist, I'd love to be a pop star. <laughs> but I think that maybe I may be too old for that one. <laughs> that was Claire Pooley on the Richard Krauss Show. Find her new novel Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting wherever you buy fine books, and maybe pick up an ABBA album while you're out as well. Big thanks to Claire Pooley for stopping by. I also want to give a big shout out to Chloe Trakos. Find her movie introducing Jodea wherever you legally buy and download movies. And don't forget to watch The Terminal List. That's the new series starring Chris Pratt and Taylor Kitsch. They were my guests in the first segment. You can see it on Amazon Prime. And it's a great psychological drama. There's lots of intrigue. There's possibly a conspiracy. There's lots of action. It's good stuff. I think you'll enjoy it. I'm not going to tell you again. Stay off my list. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. We'll talk to you soon.